This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. As a guy who learned the hard way how important proper nutrition is on your health and the great harm excess weight can have on your health, I urge you to get serious about your health with SimpleToLose.com. Diets don't work, and you're really only going to be successful losing weight when you learn how to eat differently. And that is why the free health coaches at Simple to Lose are so helpful. They teach you how to eat six meals a day and why it works. Many people on my team are working with Simple to Lose and their health coaches. As a team, we've lost over 850 pounds. Mary has lost over 85 pounds and wants to live a long life to keep her family strong. Brad's lost 40 pounds, finally feels like he did when he was in his 30s. Chris, whose father died young due to obesity, has lost 100 pounds and is off most of his medications. Change your life, get healthy, and thrive today. Go to simpletolose.com today, not tomorrow. Go today, simpletolose.com. Results do vary. Typical weight loss is 2 to 5 pounds per week for the first two weeks, then 1 to 2 pounds per week thereafter. Will Kane, S-E, Cup, R. Kane and Cup, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Not this Saturday morning. Nope, not Kane and Cup this Saturday morning. I am really excited about today's show. Um, but before I tell you why, I just want I feel a little bit like I'm driving down the highway at about 90 miles an hour, and I just unscrewed the steering wheel and chunked it out the window. We are in new studios today here in New York City. And uh, we have technical difficulties left and right, but we're going to work through it because what I want to do is hang out with you for the next three hours. And I think this is going to be good. I, I mean, I just tweeted this. You guys remember how we whipped their ass in 1783? And then we did it again in 1812. Well, for the next three hours, you're going to have the Revolutionary War strung out. I mean, us versus them. Me as your proxy fighting those, those overbearing, pretentious, what, we, what, do we, what do you want to call you, British? Sure. Englishman? British, yes. Filling in today for SE Cup is National Review's Charles Cook, our good friend. I'm really excited to have you here today, Charles. I'm excited too, and I would just uh, point out that you are, of course, speaking in English. <laughs> That's right. That's, That's true. Uh, I'm happy to have uh, adopted some of the better in parts of your book. New York. New York, which is the, an English town in the north of England, under common law. The revolution was a civil war. You're welcome. Well, all we can hope is that over the next three hours, no Germans come in here, and I have well, to help. I, would I have absolutely. to take. I have to get your back. I mean, you, if well, you, you you would probably help me and and effectively, but you'd be two hours late. Well, I might be late, but it would be after you turn and going. Please, please, can you help out here? Right. We're after, really, we're getting after. whooped. Right, after I'd lost most of my body and was limping around while you guys were eating ice cream in a diner somewhere. Just as we go through the three hours, just let me know any other fights you can't handle on your own. And I'll, I'll be there for you. Because there is, a, there is a special relationship. There is a special relationship. Whether it will be intact at the end of this show, I don't know. <laughs> All right. um, over the next three hours, I think one of the disappointing things about Charles being here today is I happen to agree with him on damn near everything. I can't think of too many issues where we've had vigorous disagreement, but we're going to seek them out today. Uh, a little later in the show, we're going to talk about how uh, the contradictions of liberalism, modern liberalism, can't seem to withstand itself. Whether or not the issue is Islam or transgenderism, the contradictions of their, of their various points of view, of their various contentions, seem to collide and create a sort of logical black hole, sucking every sense of, of, uh, of understanding, of rationality, of logic down into it. We're going to get to that a little later. 
wanna I wanna push back on something. I don't know where you will be on this, Charles, but um, I know that some of the audience disagrees with me. John Grisham has received a great amount of online outrage, which in and of itself, by the way, isn't unique. That's the purpose of the internet. It's moved from porn distribution to self-righteous outrage distribution. John Grisham is the latest victim because he spoke up in an attempt to have sort of an intellectual, nuanced discussion about whether or not we treat people who consume child pornography justly. That in our second hour. But first, there was, uh, Charles, there was a fascinating, at least at least one paragraph of this piece was fascinating by John uh, Klein on, uh, on uh, time.com. Uh, and he, he was talking about President Obama. And the contention uh, is that President Obama, in his estimation, has advanced good policies over the last several years. Now, you and I can disagree with that. And do. And do. But he gets to a point late in his, um, in his column where he suggests, but the real problem with President Obama is his concept of leadership or his inability to lead. And he says the following. He says, uh, hearkening back to the late 1970s, he says, I remember Jimmy Carter, and I remember thinking, poor Jimmy. History has led America to a rut and will never be as powerful as we once were. Reagan proved me young and foolish. Some of his achievements are illusory or attributable to Carter policies, but the man knew how to lead. I can't say that for Obama. Lately, the president's body language has too often conveyed disgust and cynicism. He seems defeated by the trivial pursuits of the media and his opponents, and he does not have the sunny conviction necessary to carry the country through a period of near-biblical plagues and wars. Well, I agree with every word of that. I would say that there is a more systemic tendency at play here, uh, that being that whenever a poor leader comes along, uh, the American people and the American elite, especially in the media, tend to blame the system. Under Jimmy Carter, there was a profusion of articles and broadcasts that essentially argued that America had become ungovernable, that uh, an 18th century constitution was um, uh, not compatible with a modern industrial nation, and, and Ronald Reagan came along and uh, got rid of that, and that wasn't really discussed uh, much during the Reagan, uh, Bush Sr., and Clinton years. And now it's back because we've had two presidents in a row. Now, it's very nice to see that Klein is not, in fact, doing that. What he's saying is Obama can't cut it as right. a leader. But uh, Well, this tendency that you're talking about isn't limited to blaming the system. President Obama himself has been, from the left, lauded as having wonderful policies and, for some reason, a, a poor ability to communicate them. Right, and That was what we heard throughout the Obamacare debate. For some sure. reason, he can't communicate it, and he was elected almost exclusively on his communication skills. Right. We did hear that, but it's nice to see Klein for once saying bluntly he's not a good leader because uh, it has been much easier for the left and for the media in general to presume that it's not Obama's fault, it's that the right. country's ungovernable, politics is broken, Republicans uniquely won't listen, opposition is racist or unacceptable or just playing politics. Finally, somebody who is not a conservative has said what needs to be said, which is that he's just not suited for the presidency. Well, what's fascinating about this is that, uh, you know, you and I actually don't love doing what is essentially, I don't know, Obama bashing. Um, I love attacking the various ideas he stands in representation of. But what Klein described, I've seen it, man. I've seen it in press conferences, in leadership meetings. It's sort of that slumped, you know, shoulder-sagging look on the desk where President Obama is sitting there. He looks defeated, but he looks defeated in a way where he's so disappointed in all of us. He doesn't look 
Klein called it sunny. He doesn't look erect, um, shoulders back, inspiring. This is he has looked that way. He, you know, whether or not you agree or disagree with him, his campaigning in two thousand eight largely projected the image of leadership. But here, seven years later, he looks defeated and and somewhat angry. Right, and he has not recognized that he is now the president. Uh, I have often criticized uh, Barack Obama uh, for being a bomb thrower. And when I do so, people say to me, well, you do it. You are emphatic in your writing. You are polemic in your writing. And that's true. But writers and leaders, especially leaders of the entire country, which is what the presidency is, are two different things. Now, this is a cliche, but when you are an academic or when you're a community organizer or even when you're a senator, you can represent your position purely from your position and you can presume that everybody who disagrees with you is evil or stupid or ignorant or whatever. When you're the president, though, you can't do it. We saw uh, Governor Malloy in Connecticut last week uh, slam National Review. I write for National Review. He called it a right-wing teabag organization. Now, that's fine. I'm used to hearing that. I don't mind insults. I don't mind strong language in politics. But it does change slightly when you're talking about your constituents. And Obama, I think, has made the same mistake, which is that it is acceptable to routinely lambast half the country when you're the senator from Illinois or yeah. when you're a professor. But when you're the president, you can't do it and expect them not to push back. So I think he is disappointed as you say, and I think he is tired, but I think he's also just failed to understand what being a president involves. Yeah, he's treated the office at its best as though he is a think tank um, a think tank policy analyst, and he has treated it as worst as though he is a pundit on cable television. Um, but you bring up an interesting point, and this is one I want to put to you guys listening at home, is what is what are the qualities of a leader? Abstractly, I mean, look, John Maxwell... Is, is the leader in the industry of analyzing these things. Um, Jim Collins has talked about leadership from a business perspective constantly. And I don't know that we need to separate business and politics, but there are some consistent qualities, character traits, um, personalities that are reflected in effective leaders. 888-900-3393. I want to hear from you. I want to put together, if we can, kind of a composite of what, what – an ideal leader should look like. I have a list of items right here, um, most of which I checked the box on, so I'm pretty pretty, pretty pleased about that. I um, doubt that very much. Well, we're going to go through that. Okay. I, have, uh, I have qualitative analysis to show that I'm leading you right now. You are leading me, but that's because we agreed that you would lead me. And I want to find out who the top five leaders are in Charles's estimation. Yours as well. 888-900-3393. Tell me the qualities of a leader and tell me the person that has exhibited those. We'll get into that when we come back on Cane and Cuff with Charles Cook. Will Kane and Desi Cup. We'll continue in a moment on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back. SE Cup is out this weekend. I don't know what she's doing. I think I think she's doing something with the NRA. Usually, I think that's the answer. Where's SE with the NRA? Uh, but filling in for SE with me this morning is National Review's Charles Cook. 
on Twitter. I'm getting some pushback. Here's LJ Cambria telling me, okay, Will Kane, please keep quiet and let Charles C.W. Cook talk for the next three hours. It's a good idea. The problem, LJ, is you talk so slowly that a three-hour show could take five hours. He actually called me yesterday. Charles said, hey, Will, you always criticize me for how slowly I talk. Are you concerned about tomorrow? Look, it's it's a deliberate way of speaking. I, I can't account for your accent, but mine was trained rigorously. So oh, We're going to get into that a little later mm. in the show. English, British accents, various kinds, and the effort put into perfecting that wonderful sing-song you've got going there. Thanks, Will. You know, Sam Rayburn was a famous uh, Texan congressman, was there for a long time in Washington, D.C., buildings named after him, Rayburn Building, where most congressmen hold their offices. And uh, I believe... It, the story goes something like he was sitting in um, in uh, in the chambers one day with his legs propped up on the desk, kind of sit back, looked like he was sleeping, and then he began to speak, and somebody criticized him for his intellect, something said, sir, just because I speak slowly doesn't mean I think slowly. So, while I'm not a slow talker, I'm, I, have, I, feel, I feel defensive for you. Thank you. Even though you're the one who generally levels the complaint. No one else has ever said this to me except you. Really? No Absolutely. one's told you you're a slow talker? No, I, I I imagine others have noticed I speak slowly, but or at least I speak slowly when I'm broadcasting. But I don't think anyone is bothered by it. What are the essential qualities? What are the inherent qualities of a good leader? We're talking about this morning the fact that President Obama, even from the left at this point, whether or not you agree with his policy, seems to have failed from a leadership perspective. And he is the physical embodiment in many respects of a failed leader. He looks defeated. He looks disgusted. He looks disappointed in all of us and somewhat angry. What are the qualities that project great leadership? Now, Charles, let's go through a few of these if we can. Um, as I said, there's a whole industry designed to analyzing leadership. John Maxwell, Jim Collins, Malcolm Gladwell, to some extent, writes about essentially self-help through the mechanism of business and leadership. Um, and, and, the, and the qualities we often hear won't come as a surprise. We talk about courage. We talk about honesty. Um, but I think what, what qualities, if you see that, that aren't commonly mentioned, I have some that I don't think that are commonly mentioned in, in, in what makes for a great leader. Well, b before I answer this, I want to be annoying and slightly reject the premise of the question, which is uh, what makes a great leader? The, the problem with that is, yes, there are certain constants. One has to have integrity and courage and honesty. But one of the things that makes a great leader is... Uh, being suitable for the time. Cometh the hour, cometh the man. And therefore, one can establish two wholly separate, two perhaps diametrically opposed men and uh, put them on a pedestal as great leaders, even though, on the face of it, they were different in style and output and necessity. I think that's important. I think I have to agree with that premise simply from the fact that um, I love business analysis and whether or not, you know, what, what makes for a successful business. And, 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 and timing is just so key. Um, one of the, the, the uh, famous investors behind Kleiner Perkins, which is a, a venture capital fund in Silicon Valley, said we never invest in pioneers. I don't want anything to do with pioneers. Pioneers get scalped. We don't want MySpace. We want Facebook. We want second to the market. Just emphasizing the fact that timing. You're suggesting a man and his place and his time is so key. Right, but I think if you look at, say, President Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, now both of them played broadly the same role in their respective countries. 
Uh, they revived their domestic economies. They took on the Soviet Union. They provided moral clarity. They were extremely different people. Ronald Reagan was a humorous, sunny, amiable sort of fellow. And Mrs. Thatcher was a harsh, humorless, uh, strict, uh, and in some regards, unlikable person. You know now, what's interesting about that is if you look up lists of, of, of great leadership qualities, positivity and, and sense of humor are often on the list. Now, I don't know if that's through an American prism, but uh, you point out Thatcher didn't have either of those. She didn't. And in some cases, they are great virtues. Abraham Lincoln was... Uh, an amiable man who was uh, apparently very funny. He would tell jokes. He could prize people from the doldrums with uh, his levity. I don't think Attila the Hun has a reputation for being especially comical. And likewise, <laughs> I, I'm not sure that Catherine the Great would have been invited to perform stand-up in Brooklyn. Well, they would have had their time and their place. Right, and that's exactly my point. And so there is a limit to trying to establish in a vacuum what makes a great leader. Now, what one can do, and I imagine what we're about to do, is look at individuals and explain why they were a great leader or look at individual scenarios and uh, explain what is necessary for leadership within. We'll do that. Uh, but I want to share with you, this is kind of interesting to me, because as I said, if you look up lists of great leadership qualities, they're, they're, they're fairly homogenous. They, they do fall back on abstract concepts of courage and honesty. But I have a list that was put on uh, Forbes.com of seven unconventional behaviors of inspiring leaders. And I like a lot of these. Um, the top of the list is playing devil's advocate. Um, and this doesn't necessarily mean political leadership and ability to coalesce a crowd, but actually to inspire greatness in those around you, perhaps in small groups, perhaps in a business setting. It says, it's easy to think that we are right. It soothes our egos, but it takes courage to stand up to challenge, stand up and challenge your own experiences, knowledge, and ideas in this I think it's an extension of courage. And I have often, and we will today, talk about the role of the mob and popular sentiment. I think that a leader, a real leader, has to show the ability to stand up against popular conclusions. I think that's right. Uh, on the initial point, the capacity to play devil's advocate, there's a little uh, vignette that I like to mention in these circumstances. I was in Portland, Oregon in October and November of 2009. This was at the end of that summer when Obamacare was being debated in the town halls up and down the country. It was fever pitch. It was all anybody wanted to talk about, and politics had gone nuclear. And President Obama just happened to be giving an address in Portland, Oregon, while I was there. It was broadcast live on the local television station. And he answered a question, I think brilliantly, from an audience member. Why do you think the right is so opposed to this law? And he said, well, some people are just opposing me. Some people uh, don't want uh, this because it interferes with their uh, present situation. Fair enough. And then he said, but there is a long tradition in this country, a long, proud, reasonable, important ideological tradition in which the federal government is not supposed to play this role. And he laid out the conservative position broadly as I would have made it. Mm. And I was impressed by that. I never heard him do anything of the sort again. He's I never saw him do it in another town hall. I never saw him do it apropos Obamacare. And I have never seen him give his opponents the benefit of the doubt or even pretend that they're human beings with different worldviews since then. That's a shortcoming. Right. And it is the extension of another quality on this list, which is taking the blame. Um, great leaders take the blame. They're not constantly shifting around the fault. 
Um, I mean, I think the most famous example is what was it, Harry Truman with the, the buck stops here sign on sitting on the front of his desk. Uh, here's another one, by the way, I think it's fascinating. The capacity to shut up, the capacity to disappear, and, li- and, and truly listen to those around you, to let it play out, to not always – this is one, by the way, I find difficult. Not as always uh, joking about being a leader, but I- instead of treating it like a bucking horse that you have to try to break and guide, actually let it go sometimes and see where it goes on its own. Um, all right, so who are the greatest leaders of – as Charles said, let's analyze specific leaders. Who exhibits all these leadership qualities? We'll take a breadth of history, business, politics. What are Who have been the great leaders? When we come back on Canyon Cup. You're listening to Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. You do dance though. You dance at this. You're gonna you're gonna cut a, a rug at this wedding reception. I am. When I dance, people emigrate, but I do it anyway. Hey, I, what? I look like a stroke victim when I dance. It's really embarrassing. Show me. Show me. I I did just show you a little bit. That was a little shimmy you did. With I your did a little shimmy. That's uh, my only move though. I learned a dance for my own wedding, uh, which took me about five weeks. I can only imagine you've taken like formal dance class back in England. Like when you were learning how to wear the long tails and top coat? You don't learn. that you, You're born knowing how to do that if you're English. It's in the blood. Did you take dance classes growing up? No, I didn't. I did do horse riding. That fancy equestrian style? Absolutely. Yeah. You ever rode a western saddle? No, but I want to. You ever to. seen a grown man naked? I love that film. You like airplanes? Yeah, and you know, I noticed something that Joe Biden in his speech at the convention, and in fact in many of his speeches during the election, would say, well, my dad would sit at the end of the bed and he'd say, Joey. And, of course, the first thing that came into my mind is that scene in Airplane, that repeating joke. Right. Have you ever been in a Turkish prison? Do <laughs> you like my American accent there? Was that an American accent? Well, it was an attempt. Okay, we're going to get into accents a little later in the show because I am going to quiz you over various English-British accents, your ability to discern them, not just by what you hear, but their class background, their, how much money they have. You, you can do all sorts of various like psychic readings based upon someone's accent. But you mentioned Joe Biden. So let's talk about great leaders. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about – we have talked about the abstract qualities of great leaders. But let's put this into practical um, illustration. Who are some of history's greatest leaders? So let's talk about names, men who – and women who found their time, as you said earlier, because it is somewhat um, correlated to your time and your place who showed these characteristics. Give me one right now. One of history's great leaders. Well, the obvious example. If you go with Churchill, I'm going to kick you right That's out what here. I was going to say. I mean, say. that's so cliche. Right, but it's important. And i tell you why it's important. Because you have to look at cometh the hour, cometh the man. Churchill was largely seen as a joke during the 1930s. He made a number of mistakes for a start he became obsessed with the India question, whether India should gain its independence. And he talked about very little else. 
at the same time, he was also seen as a kook because he believed that Hitler was on the rise and that Britain needed to arm itself and that if it didn't arm itself and if it didn't intervene in Europe in the early to mid-1930s, there was going to be a war. As regards most of the parliament, he was therefore an outmoded imperialist and a warmonger. And yet, when it came to it, people recognized that he had the quality to lead Britain. There's a second reason this is important, because no one else had the balls. Winston Churchill was up for the job after Neville Chamberlain's resignation against a man called Lord Halifax. Now, Lord Halifax would have given in to the Germans. This was made clear. He advocated in 1940 for Britain to make a deal, to give Germany some of its imperial possessions, maybe Uganda. And Churchill said, absolutely not. Every last Englishman will die on the ground in his own blood before we will do that. We did not fight for this. We will not lose a 900,000-year island story, in his phrase, to uh, these, these clowns. And had he not been there, British history would have been very different. There is a flaw in the great man theory of history, the idea that all history is the product of individuals at their exact moment who took a stand. But with Churchill, it really would have been different had he not come along. But he was by no means assumed to be on that path, maybe even two years before the war. You know, it's interesting. You talked about um, we will not lose a 900,000-year island story to, to these bullies. It's interesting that xenophobia, to some extent, whether or not we want to put a, um, a more positive spin on that and call it patriotism, right, is important. It's, it's, it's valuable. It's so often today painted as a negative, right, that you are somehow closed-minded by thinking that you are exceptional or you should value your history over somebody else's or, in fact, value it over practicality. The example you gave of Lord Halifax was bending to practicality. I'll be practical and not sacrifice the lives of British boys for Uganda, right, where Churchill was laying, falling back on an abstraction of patriotism, of, yeah, xenophobia to some extent, of Britishness. And it's interesting how that, it's not a vice. In fact, in certain instances, I think tying into the time and the place, it's a value. I'll give you one off of my own because we're playing our own little games of uh, xenophobia. It would be um, Sam Houston. Sam Houston, a man whose time and place manifested in the state of Texas at the time, the territory of Texas, which became the Republic of Texas. Sam Houston was a drunk. Sam Houston was laughed out of Congress, the United States Congress. He went back to Tennessee, an alcoholic, and went like every other, uh, like, uh, you know, reject to Texas. Similar to Australia's story, GTT, you guys can go to hell, I'm going to Texas. And then they go down there, and Sam Houston has the ability to coalesce and fragmented, rebellious population under a singular premise, under a singular idea. I want to agree with you and disagree with you there. I, I, I think it's worth putting the Churchill example within its proper context, which is by no means xenophobia. Uh, phobia f comes from the Greek phobos, which means to flee from. Okay. Now, it's important because there are good and bad reasons to flee from something, but the way we use it in modern colloquial English is generally an insult. You right. are fleeing from this because of some irrational fear. There was nothing irrational about fearing a uh, British uh, loss to the Nazis, as uh, Winston Churchill would have said, with the lights of perverted science. They were animals, and he knew that, and he knew that it compared to the proud uh, Anglo-American, remember he was half American, tradition of individual liberty, of the Magna Carta, of due process, of free speech, and so on and so forth, 
that there was something to worry about and that ultimately there was no making deals right. with Hitler in the way there had been no making deals with Napoleon. Your root point, though, that there is something virtuous about nations, even when they're not threatened by historical monsters, that there is something virtuous about having France as a discrete entity from Italy, right. about having even Ohio as a discrete entity from Michigan, because small polities allow people to run their affairs better than big ones, is extremely important and is generally disparaged uh, on the left and certainly in universities and by our more cosmopolitan types who like to talk about unity and so on and so forth. And there is, in my view, nothing xenophobic whatsoever about that. At the same time, saying we are British, this is how we like to live, we are different than the French, therefore we're going to run our own parliament, and even making jokes about the French in the way Texans make jokes about Californians and the Irish and the English and the Canadians and the Americans and the Australians and the New Zealanders, I think really is the, is the security that we enjoy as free people, and you're right, it is under attack. It's under attack, and in, in, I would build it into also a more uh, abstract quality, which the left constantly lifts up, and that's the concept of community. These small groups, whether it's British or Texan or even smaller into your community, your town, they're reflections of, of people, as you said, who like to live in the same way, who have bonds with each other, love each other. It's just a sense of community. Okay, on the table we have uh, Churchill, Sam Houston, and we both have to put the 1980s up there. Reagan and Thatcher, as we mentioned earlier, are manifestations of great leadership. Yes, and Reagan not just because of his moral clarity and of his success, but because he was a superb delegator. Ronald Reagan knew what he was good at, and he knew what he wasn't good at. He was not remotely the stupid man that he was portrayed at by his enemies. He was very well read. Before he became president, he worked for General Electric, and he went around the country as a spokesman. And in the course of doing so, he not only honed his talents as a speaker and as a thinker, but he read hundreds and hundreds of books on trains up and down the country. He read Hayek. He read The Founders. He knew uh, what America was supposed to be about. But he also knew that he knew very little, for example, about energy policy. Mm -hmm. He knew that he didn't know how to run the Defense Department beyond instructing it that we are going to win and they are going to lose and that we can outspend them and that we can build more nuclear weapons or whatever. And so he surrounded himself with excellent people. He didn't try to micromanage every single last detail. He didn't do, for example, what Lyndon Johnson had done, which is to personally order each bombing raid during the Vietnam War when it came to... Yeah, but you know, as you said, for, for come with the man, come with the time, or something like that, when you add THs on the ends of words, I don't even... I feel like I'm listening to NPR or Masterpiece Theater. But for a man in his time, those different qualities have different values. The ability to delegate, as you pointed out, is, is, is immensely important, but also the ability to drive through. I wondered if LBJ would come up, because LBJ is often held up as the antithesis of Obama. He fought for what he wanted. You and I disagree with much of what he wanted, but he forced it through. By all accounts, a despicable human being, LBJ, but one who said, I know how to bend arms, I know how to bend wills, and sure. I will get what I want done. And that's certainly different than Obama. It's not quite a refutation of the Reagan point because that's what LBJ was good at. He didn't need to delegate the legislative process because he was a keen legislator. Right. He had been in both houses of Congress and he had a reputation uh, as being uh, an extremely effective uh, legislator. What about uh, delegation is so important in business, but I think to the same point, two different styles. You mentioned in an email with me earlier, Steve Jobs, um, uh, one of the guys who's held up as a, as a great leader is Jack Welch, who was the, uh, the CEO of GE. 
Um, Welch, efficient delegation, massive company. You have to delegate. Understand your assets at various different types of businesses you're engaged in. Jobs, singularly focused. I would suggest more like an LBJ-type figure in, in the world of business. I chose Jobs for the same reason that I would choose, say, Paul McCartney, which I imagine sounds odd. Neither of them cared what anybody thought about them when they were working. All they cared about was that their product was exceptional. Paul McCartney, by all accounts, was difficult in the studio. He would tell the other Beatles that their line was wrong. If there was the slightest mistake, he would go back and do it again. He didn't care. Steve Jobs, again, didn't really care about people's feelings. He would fire people on a moment's notice. He was obsessive. He would chastise people. In fact, there was an interesting piece in the last week from Jonathan Ive, who is now Apple's uh, lead designer, I think, saying that the biggest thing he learned from Steve Jobs was that it is much more important to get your product to a place at which you can call it perfect than it is to be popular. And as a leader, when you are selling high-end goods, that's an important quality. Now, it wouldn't be an important quality in a president. So listen, we got to take a break. Let's do one more category. Let's let's talk about the world of sports. Um, by the way, there's a through line, and 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 maybe you, I'm filtering this through my own personal passions. But the through line on all these leaders is the ability to stand up to popular sentiment. I mean, I think the antithesis of leadership is pandering. I think the antithesis of leadership is the desire to be the lead lemming. To to the 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 crowd is moving. The mob is on its way. Popular sentiment is going in a direction, and to run yourself to the front to appear as a leader. That's the antithesis. The leader stands up amidst the crowd and changes its direction. And it's my filter. And even on the right, when I see politicians pander, it's my number one turnoff. Until you reach a tipping point. There is a certain point beyond which obstinacy is futile and will prevent you from being able to lead in any other way. Interesting. All right. uh, Let's take a quick break on Canning Cup when we come back. Leaders in the realm of sports. And Charles tells us, as he will, I'm sure, throughout the hour, one of the things he's really good at, passwords. This is Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. Part of the next generation of talk radio, Kane and Cup is on. Winston Churchill, Sam Houston, Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan, Steve Jobs, Jack Welch. We've gone through some of the famous leaders in history. We're going to quickly talk about those in sports as well. Um, Go ahead. Tell me some English sportsmen I've never heard of. Well, I was always a big fan of Roy Keane, who was a midfielder and the captain of Manchester United when I was younger. And that's because he wasn't just a a fantastic player, but he was a talisman, which I think is probably another... Uh, interesting and important quality in a leader. Uh, We overdo this, for example, within conservative politics, but it is important to have a Ronald Reagan figure to say, what would a conservative look like? Roy Keane was that soccer player. And when the team was down, when the crowd was quiet, he was the one driving forward. He was the one shouting. He, if he'd been in a war, would have been the one with the blood running down his face, running at the enemy. And in sport, that matters because it's sort of, uh, peaceful war. But again, I think maybe your first lesson is the one we'll take. Uh, cometh the hour, cometh the man. The lesson I was going to give was Troy Aikman, the three-time winning Super Bowl quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys, and story famously of a tight end. He was like a second-string tight end. He was on the team for a few years. 
ran into the huddle during one of the big games, was clapping his hands. Come on, guys, let's hurry. Right, right, here we go. We're gonna. And everybody in the huddle just quietly looked at him, waited. Aikman looked at him, waited, waited. He said, "Are you done? Okay." And then laid out, you know, in medical precision. This is what we're gonna do next. Break. Go. He held the team together through his precision, not through his rah-rah cheerleading, um, go-get-em attitude. Quickly, other since I'm gonna just stick with the Dallas Cowboy theme, this isn't this. This is one of those fascinating stories. I think which shows leadership. Tony Romo is the quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys now. He was undrafted. He was unheralded. He was a no-name unknown when he came out. Sometime early in one of his first training camps, like his third year in the league, Bill Parcells is the coach and Jerry Jones is the owner. And they know that Tony Romo at this point has showed enough he's going to be the quarterback of the future. And they think, we need to lock him up. We need to get him under contract now because anybody finds out, he'll jack up the price on us and we could possibly lose him. They corner him in the locker room after a preseason game. One of the Hall of Fame coaches and most powerful owner in sports and say, we need you to sign a deal right now. Here, we've got it. And they back him into a corner, physically back him into a corner and say, we want you to be the starting quarterback, but here's the deal. Sign this or you won't be. We'll move on. Romo stood his ground and said, no. Now I'm going to wait. We'll, we'll work this out in negotiations. And he had, the, he had the high card. He won. They knew it. He knew it. Went on. He's been a quarterback for 10 years. $100 million contract. Backbone. That's almost Leadership. exactly how my contract negotiations go at National Review. Is that right? Yeah, people, uh, they push me into the corner holding a pencil. All right. When we come back on Cane and Cup with Charles Cook standing up to the mob. Listening to Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. Will Kane S E Cup R Kane and Cup Kane and Cup only on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back. SE Cup is out today. Filling in for her, sitting across the table from me, is National Review's Charles Cook. Um, how long have you lived in America? Uh, since the summer of 2011, June 25th. Three years. You haven't been here that long. No, a little over three years. You were single when you came here, right? I was. You're married now. I am. What was the most surprising thing about America? Well, I knew American girls, and I dated American girls before because I had spent quite a lot of time here. Uh, so I, I just think American girls are different from the English. It's not just English girls. Americans are different than the English in that the English speak in a sort of code language. We don't say much directly. So, for example, if I were to say to you, if I were to try and convey to somebody that I didn't think you were very good at your job, uh-huh. I would say, well, I don't think Will is the best broadcaster, which doesn't mean you might be second or third. It means you're (laughs) terrible. And so relationships work very much along those lines as well. Whereas in America, I've found girls are very straightforward and direct, which I find much easier because I don't have to wonder what they're thinking or what they mean. I don't have to play these linguistic So you go into a bar when you're single and you identify a young lady that you would like to have some drinks with, some more discussion, however late that discussion may go into the hours of the morning. And you go up to her, and she decides fairly soon, okay, this ain't happening for you, buddy. Charles Cook, you and me, it ain't happening. In England— I mean, I have no experience of that, of course. No, this has never happened, right. Completely theoretical. In England, that would go down how? She'd be like, you're not the best guy at the bar tonight. No, no, it's not not quite that. Although I will say that 
Americans have a dating culture. Now, it has in some regards been superseded by a hookup culture, but there's still a dating culture. In England, uh, it, this is in part the product of, I think, a slightly faster moral decay, but it's also the product of inhibitions and, and, and British reserve. The way that people tend to get together is that they get very drunk in the same room, and then the next day they're together. There's much less of a culture of, well, would you like to go out for dinner on Tuesday, and then maybe I'll see you again, and I'll see you again, which is a lot more old-fashioned when you think about That's it. That's more American, you're saying. America still That's more that. uh, American, yes. Yeah. It, the, the difference that I was referring to at the beginning is more a difference within a relationship or just hu the way human beings interact with one another. For example, I will say to my wife, would you like to go out for dinner here tonight? And she will say, no, I don't want to eat that type of food. Whereas in England, it would be, uh, yeah, sure, that, 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 that could work. And then you would have to infer from that. Now, I, I know this happens in America, too. I'm sure a lot of men listening are thinking, well, this is exactly what my wife does. But women in America, people in America are more direct than they are in England. And you've married an American Which girl. is why, by the way, I in my columns can often insult people without them knowing it, because I write still in an English style. In, in England, if you say, with the greatest of respect, it does not mean with the greatest of respect, it means I'm about to say something really rude about you, but I don't want you to get angry. <laughs> I think to some extent, I mean, there's a little retention of that in the South. Like if somebody says to you, if if a lady said, oh, bless her heart, that is the meanest thing you can say. Right, absolutely. That's true. That's true. And uh, But then it would because the mores of the American South historically were more English. Hmm. Uh, there was a conscious attempt to uh, have that almost Edwardian, this was before the Edwardian period, of course, but almost that Edwardian summer party atmosphere mm -hmm. with all of the, the hierarchies and, and moral uh, traditions that that uh, included. All right, so listen, in the last hour we talked about some of the great qualities of leadership and the leaders that exhibited those qualities. And I said at the end of the hour that one of the through lines you can see is the ability to stand up against popular sentiment, the ability to stand up against the lemmings. And I think for me personally, this has manifested as an issue so often over the past couple of years on the internet where the perpetual outrage machine, and it's not just outrage, because outrage comes in many, many forms and many different political ideologies. It's this certain kind of outrage. It is a self-righteousness. It is a holier-than-thou attitude where we out everyone for divergent opinions, politically incorrect attitudes. It's running rampant. And in my estimation, and I think some of you listening might disagree with me, it's claimed its latest victim in superstar author John Grisham, the author of The Firm, A Time to Kill, The Pelican Brief, on and on and on. He said in an interview with the London Telegraph newspaper uh, the following. He was talking about sentencing disparities and injustices in America's essentially over-criminalization of so many different things. He talked about it from a racial perspective. He said that we have racial sentencing disparities that are problematic, but we also have crime-specific sentencing disparities that are problematic. And he said the following. He said, we have prisons now filled with guys my age, 60-year-old white men in prison who have never harmed anybody, who would never touch a child, but they got online one night and started surfing around, probably had too much to drink or whatever, and pushed the wrong buttons and went too far into child porn. What he said is that we punish viewers consumers of child pornography too harshly, unjustly, he suggested. And he has been almost universally condemned, and he has apologized for his opinion 
as everyone who receives internet outrage, outrage inevitably does. Um, but Charles, I mean, I think he was standing up against popular sentiment for a thoughtful premise. Yes, I think there are two problems here. The first is the mob outrage that you just described. I wrote a, a piece a while back describing hashtags not as they are sold, which is a happy, fluffy means by which we can all get together and discuss things, connect, be one together, but as a beacon and siren call for the mob, for pitchfork-wielding people who generally have no idea what the initial offense was, but want to be seen as part of those who are offended. He has fallen foul to that. But what he's really fallen foul of is a tendency to look only at one word in the sentence. It's almost as if today we are robots and we scan pieces and we scan snippets of conversation for certain words and then we condemn the person who spoke them regardless of the context or the intent. And that's problematic. The Robots uh, to me is a kind of analogy. I, I mean, it reminds me of cavemen or something. Child porn, bad. You know, guttural. Condemnation follows child porn. Right. Done. But here's a good example of it. Now, there is a statistic going around. It's been widely used that one in five college uh, women are sexually assaulted. This has been widely debunked. But you can't talk about that. No. Because even before you have gone into why the statistic is difficult, uh, into what is wrong with it, into uh, mathematical explanations of your skepticism, you have said the words, I am not sure that that is true. At which point someone else has thrown at you, you are a rape culture denier or a rape culture enabler. Exactly. It's the same with climate change. If you say, hold on a moment, I do believe that we are changing the environment. I do believe that uh, man has some role and that there is going to be some consequence. But the second the butt comes out of your mouth, as it were, you are not allowed to finish because you're a climate change denier. Well, even if you John, do finish at that point, it's going to be ignored. Now, we should get on to the material point here, right. which is what he said. But I think it's worth saying at the outset, it's not just the mob. It's our total unwillingness now as a culture to do anything other than read the headline, which is John Grisham says child rapists, child pornographers, child whatever should be uh, given lesser prison sentences. We're not interested in why. The answer, the conclusion you're giving us, what happens is if you withdraw any questions about something like child porn, you're a defender of child porn, or perhaps you're a supporter of child porn. If you question a nation's drug laws and whether or not they're just or unjust, you're a supporter of drugs, mm. and perhaps you probably take them yourselves to some heavy degree. We're incapable of actually intellectually exploring this issue. The question when it comes to Grisham and what he talked about is this. Under mandatory minimum sentencing laws, someone who views child porn, something of which we would all condemn, the question, the issue is, to what level? Mandatory minimum sentences would require that that person serve somewhere between 15 and 20 years, whereas a 50-year-old man who sexually abused a 13-year-old girl would receive four years in prison. The question very simply is, is that just. And that's a legal question, and it's a good legal question. It's also a moral question, and it's a good moral question. Nobody is disputing whether child porn is an abomination. Of course it is an abomination. As you say, he is asking whether the justice system is calibrated uh, in the correct manner. In other words, does it treat 
uh, crimes according to their severity. Uh, and the comparison you just drew between, say, someone who has actually abused a child and somebody who's looked at child porn does, to me, seem to be out of whack. You also mentioned, and I think this is the crux of it, that to raise that question or to raise that objection is inevitably to be accused of defending child porn or child pornographers. We don't tend to see the world like that in America, do we? We don't say, for example, that if you are in favor of uh, a strict reading of the First Amendment, then you must be in favor of neo-Nazis or the Klan. We accept that there is a distinction between liberal principles in the old sense of that word and how they will be abused. We also accept that they aren't liberal principles at all if they aren't going to be abused by some people. There is, of course, no point defending free speech if you're not going to defend those whom you hate. Uh, and think are ugly. I think John Grisham is a perfect example of this. Child pornographers are the worst people in our society. They should be loathed by civil society. We should be repulsed by their actions. That doesn't mean, however, that we lock them uh, in a jail cell and throw away the key and that nobody is ever allowed to argue that our reactions are too harsh or that right. the sentencing system is wrong. Uh, we cannot call ourselves civilized if that is to be the case because otherwise we would never be able to change the law. Suppose we had a law that said you go to jail for 500 years if you've downloaded child porn, even by accident. Then you go to prison and somebody stands up and says, well, I think that's a bit excessive. What are we going to do? We're going to throw them out of town. Well, and by the way, 71% of federal judges agree with you, me, and John Grisham. This seems to be unjust, the way we treat this particular law. But that's not worthy. That can't be questioned, Charles. We can't do what we're doing because no matter the intellectual exercise you're asking yourself, you're violating, as you mentioned, I'll just put it in different words, the branding mechanism of our, of our morality. Like, you, I am branded as anti-child porn, so therefore I won't. Listen to anything you have to say and uh, presume the worst of you. It's the personal branding of morals. It's politics as fashion. Mm. Um, let's talk a little bit more about that. I want to hear from you, 888-900-3393, when we come back on Kane and Cup. This is Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. self-righteousness, online outright, outrage culture has completely destroyed public thought, um, intellectual exploration. John Grisham's the latest victim claimed for daring to explore whether or not our laws justly treat those who have indulged in child pornography, and for that he has been completely publicly, interestingly, shamed, flayed. You were just talking during the break, talking about the role of shame and punishment. Actually, that's what's happening to John Grisham, just in a different form. Uh, it's, it's the modern-day stockade, <laughs> in a way. There's nothing wrong with shame. Indeed, shame is largely preferable to government involvement. But when a culture is so reflexive with its shaming that it can't distinguish between thought-out critique and genuine outrage, then you have transcended whatever value shame has, and you've become a culture that just silences anybody who moves an inch either side of the zeitgeist. You wrote a piece, interestingly, about this sort of online liberalism, online self-righteousness, online policy doing in the, in the form of Ezra Klein. 
in California's yes mean yes laws. The yes mean yes laws in California were a heightened and yet ambiguous requirement of consent between two adults having sex um, to make sure it's not rape, essentially. It's not no means no anymore. It's you must have affirmative consent. And what affirmative consent means, it's really well, it was the, it was the recalibrating of the means by which universities in California, and this has happened without the involvement of the government on many other college campuses, including Harvard, at which 28 law professors have complained. Um, the recalibration of the rules by which accusations of rape are treated by college campus officials. And the standard has been changed where before one needed to demonstrate, insofar as one can ever do that post hoc, that the other person within the sexual encounter, to use the hideous legal term, uh, said no, one now has to demonstrate that they said yes. Now, we can debate that. I think it's a terrible idea for a number of reasons, not least uh, of which is that it's going to encourage frivolous lawsuits and it's going to try to micromanage what is a very personal and very subjective thing. But we can debate this. What we should not be doing, however, is what Ezra Klein uh, did the other day. This is the illustrious uh, editor-in-chief of a blog called Vox, uh, which is to have proposed that all of the problems with the law, the lack of due process, the likelihood that innocent people will be convicted falsely, uh, the climate of fear that a poorly implemented standard will impose on a campus are its attributes. In other words, that this is so much of a problem, this supposed rape culture on college campuses, that we need to abandon all of the liberal principles that undergird our society. The and argument he, that he has made that you're suggesting is, yes, Yes means yes is a bad law. It's a bad principle. It will inevitably sweep up innocent people. It will inevitably instill a climate of fear on college campuses. It will inevitably people lead people to wonder, I don't know. I don't know when yes has been said. I don't know when I have affirmative consent. And Ezra Klein takes all that into account and says that's a good thing. Right, and I should say this is not my characterization. It's not right-wing paranoia. Ezra Klein wrote sentences in his piece uh, like, a cold spike of fear needs to descend every time a man is about to have sex on a college campus. Uh, the gist of the argument is that rape culture, so-called, is such a significant and pronounced and ubiquitous problem in colleges, which is, false. which is false, but even if it were true, that we need to scare the hell out of everybody there and hang some innocent people, I don't mean that literally, I'm using that in the Voltairean sense, to encourage the others. And now, I do not believe that anybody who is a liberal, in either sense of that word for now, either a liberal in my sense of the word, a classical liberal, a small-r Republican in the American context, or a liberal in the older American tradition, would ever come to that conclusion only somebody who was an ideological weather vane would come to that conclusion. Because if you believe in due process and presumption of innocence, as I do, then it doesn't matter what the threat is 
you stick by the principle. It's like free speech. You don't say, well, this person is just too offensive to tolerate. There is no threat that justifies imprisoning innocent people. And Klein has demonstrated what he is, which is a directionless, valueless uh, weather vane. Do you think someone like Ezra Klein, and I would venture that he's not alone in espousing this kind of idea, this kind of um, principle that he, you need to break a few eggs to make an omelet. It's Stalin-esque. It's Stalin-esque. Do you think he understands? Do you think he hears that in his own opinion? Does he hear himself sounding like the English general in Braveheart, who, who he's smiling because I used an English example, who tied up the, 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 the villagers in Scotland just to make an example of them? It's what he's talking about, yeah. making an example of people, their guilt or innocence having no bearing on them. No, because he doesn't have the compass that I was describing. This is fashionable. Uh, he is almost certainly under assault from all sides from the fashionable uh, and zeitgeisty clique this that believes the- that this is far too important for standard liberalism, and he doesn't have the backbone to stand up to them. This is where I left us on the, on the last break. This is, this is uh, ideology and values as branding, as social cues, right. as fashion. He wants to project, I'm the right kind of person. Yes. I'm against sexual assault. I'm against child pornography. We got a few calls. You guys want to get in on this conversation? Um, we'll take your calls, talk about this when we come back on AIM. This is Kane and Cup, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. Will Kane and S.E. Cup return? Joanna Rivera on Twitter says, you're right, Will, about the punishment of, of people who view child porn, but keep the sentences for these people the same and increase the time for abusers, talking about the disparity between someone who views child porn potentially receiving 20 years in prison or an actual child abuser where can receive as little as four. She also says, by the way, the reason child porn sites are in existence is because there is a demand for them, and people who watch child porn should be punished because they feed that demand. That's true. That's why those laws exist the way they are, because it's seen as essentially creating the market for child porn. Bradley Balco in the Washington Post points out, Charles, you know, we have these harsh sentences, and yet the convictions for child porn keep going up and up and up and up, and the demand for child porn seems to keep going up and up and up, and the production keeps going up and up and up. So something's not working. We're, you know, If we think we are combating supply and demand of child porn with harsh sentencing, we are failing. True. I think either way, whether we are or not, we need to punish it. I just think there are two legitimate criticisms of the status quo. The first is that it isn't necessarily in whack with the rest of the punishments we hand out for child offenses. Uh, and the second is that mandatory minimums as a rule uh, are, are difficult because they remove discretion. Right. And there are different ways of viewing child porn. As we know, there are people who are genuine sex offenders who should be given the maximum sentence. And then there are people who have been caught researching child pornography 
uh, and have nonetheless been subjected to the same penalties. Now, that makes no sense within a, a system that's supposed to prize discretion and judgment. But with mandatory minimums, there's no capability. Precisely. Andy McCarthy, who was a former federal prosecutor and writes with you at National Review, said this is actually one of the, the, the issues that, that led him to know it was time for him to retire. He said this is one of the hardest things he had to deal with as a prosecutor. Because there's no discretion, it was incumbent upon the prosecutor to decide whether or not to charge. And so many of these cases were, in his estimation, he said there was often a 19-year-old with a 16-year-old girlfriend or a 15-year-old girlfriend. It was many, many cases, he said, like that where he had to choose whether or not to charge right. because if you charge after that, it's, right. you have a binary it's 15 choice. years in prison. You either let them off completely or you send them to prison for 15 years, and there's nothing that the judge can do about it. By the way, the age of consent, it's interesting, is so varied across this nation. I didn't know this, but half the states in the United States have the age of consent set at 16. Correct. Others at 17, and still others at 18. What's it's the age of consent? It's 16 in England. It's 16 in England? Why are you smiling? Because I knew you were going to ask me that. Mm-hmm. So many places to go with this right now. Um, what, what I think you were talking about in the break, Media Matters dis- distilling this. So yes. Media Matters can have fun. You have, we, 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 we have, in, in Media Matters estimation, defended rape and child pornography over the past half hour. <laughs> uh, and I'm going to say something else that they probably won't like, which is that this demonstrates uh, why there are different sorts of rape, which is something you're not supposed to say. It is evident uh, that somebody who jumps out from an alley at night and rapes a woman is far, far more morally culpable than somebody who is, say, 16 who has sex with a 15-year-old. And we know that because neighboring states, California and Oregon, have different ages of consent. In California, it's 18. I believe in Oregon, it's 16. If that isn't the exact specifics, there are states which border one another that have different ages. Uh, Now, are we suggesting that there is a great moral difference between the two states 10 miles over the border? No. Is there a moral difference... Uh, between uh, a man who rapes a woman violently in California and a man who rapes a a, a woman violently in Oregon? No, there is not. And so clearly uh, this issue, this this issue of consent uh, and of what constitutes child porn if a 15-year-old sends a picture of herself with no clothes on to a 16-year-old or a 17-year-old is separate from the question of sexual assault. And there is a need for discretion. Ray in Washington. Uh, what do you say, Ray? Ray? Yes. Hey, how are you doing this morning? What do you have to say? Oh, well, thank you very much. Well, I just want to say that uh, that I appreciate the two of you very much, and I identify with both of you. Uh, I've struggled for a long time uh, in my own personal sphere with uh, the issues you're talking about, uh, the... Uh, the uh, the speed the outrage and the uh, the difficulty in communicating. Um, uh, Will, you said something um, somewhere along the line recently about uh, being disappointed when you went to New York that you thought you were going to be able to uh, engage in intellectually satisfying disagreements and how you found that that just wasn't the case. Right. That, uh, things would go badly and you wouldn't be able to communicate. Excuse my nerviness. I get like this whenever I call into a radio show. No, you're doing great. I was well, terrified in the first so, few minutes you were going to tell me you were struggling with child porn, but it turned out you were struggling with outrage. I'm so happy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just uh, I just wanted to throw in my two cents. I I totally understand 
um, or I, 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 I empathize with what you're talking about, and I've struggled in my own way to um, to deal with it productively. What do you do? Yeah, I appreciate um, that. So it's so so to turn around and uh, uh, rail in outrage at all those stupid people is equally unproductive. Well, thanks so, for the call, Ray. I really really appreciate it. Um, you know what's interesting, Charles is. That's I am a sucker for through lines. I talked about the through line of our leadership conversation. The one here is because your morality and to a lesser extent your political beliefs become your brand, mm. okay? Because they become your fashion, you then divorce yourself from the ability to explore them and 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 nuance them. And here's Ezra Klein. And I don't mean to make this all about Ezra Klein because I think he is in your words a talisman for so much more. The purpose of what he did at Washington Post and Vox was to explore nuance, was to be explanatory journalism, and this is the antithesis of ostensibly, that. Ostensibly, yes. Yes. Yeah, so really, it's a standard progressive blog pretending to be neutral. That's right, but th- the point is, this is the antithesis of what you are holding yourself out to be, right? A- a- an interesting Correct. conversation would be exploratory on what justice is as applied to these various uh, crimes, child porn, sexual assault. And instead, it's the reduction of that to, you wrote this in your column, you were quoting somebody else, social cues. Using these issues to paint a picture of yourself that projects to everyone else at your dinner party, I'm the right kind of person. Right, because it's very easy to be a liberal, in, again, our sense of the word, when it lines up with fashion. It's much more difficult when it doesn't. Ezra Klein's life day-to-day is easy. Most of the people that he will know will, for example, support Obamacare. Most of the people that he will know will support the legalization of marijuana or the redefinition of marriage or the continuing availability of abortion. Uh, In that regard, he has very little pushback. On this issue, there is a real conflict between the increasing view of his peers and standard American legal expectations. And when it came to that, he proved himself unable to stand athwart. But he's not unique is the point, because this isn't about Ezra Klein. It is bending what you believe to social fashion. But I'm not sure he believes in that much, is what I'm saying. It's easy to call yourself a liberal, and I'm doing air quotes. When all the that. social fashions, when there out. are no costs to it, uh, I often say this to people: the notion uh, that I am in some sort of conservative bubble or right-wing echo chamber, which I get quite a lot, is so preposterous to me as to yield genuine laughter. I grew up in England. I was there until I was 26. I then moved to New York City. I work in New York City, and I live in Connecticut. Everybody disagrees with me. That's much more difficult. Now, it's good because it uh, forces one to hone one's argument. Absolutely. But but it is much more uh, difficult than just agreeing with everyone at the dinner party, and I'm not convinced that Ezra Klein is capable uh, of standing for anything beyond Uh, that which his enablers already believe. It was asked in the previous call, I think, at the end, sort of how does one deal with the outrage machine? Uh, I get asked this question a lot because I elicit, uh, I think, a lot of outrage. But 
it's easier for me. It's my job. Uh, I am paid to write what I think, whatever it is. And you have to have a reasonably thick skin, but uh, as a writer, it's not going to hurt me a great deal to write whatever I think because I'm paid to write whatever I think and I'm expected to write whatever I think. It is difficult for people on the street. We should acknowledge that outrage works. If you are a easygoing sort of person, uh, maybe you have a group of friends that largely disagrees with you, there is a cost to standing up against whatever is fashionable in this moment, especially if the mob gets a hold of it. And I must say, I do empathize with people who are outside of the mainstream, wherever they live. This goes for left and right. It's just as difficult, I imagine, uh, for a socialist atheist in the middle of Mobile, Alabama, uh, as it would be for a staunch conservative in Portland, Oregon. But it is difficult. Uh, And we should recognize that that's one of the reasons that the outrage machine is so insidious, is because okay, it doesn't matter if you're Bill Maher and you stand up and call half the country stupid. It doesn't matter if you're me and you suggest that uh, prevailing attitudes are wrong. But for people who are not day-to-day equipped to do it and day-to-day expected to do it, that exacts a cost. Yesterday on Twitter, when I said you were going to be guest hosting today, filling in for SE Cup, I kindly asked Twitter to send me all your offensive derogatory terms for British people and all your stereotypes to me over Twitter. I would be greatly appreciative of it if you did that so that I can employ them throughout the morning. Well, one of them, I'm going to go ahead and read them all off now. If sure, sure. No, I'm not going to do that. But one of them was dentally challenged. I understand I, and I, don't, don't, don't respond. Don't respond. Don't respond. We're going to get into this. We're going to take a break. I'll just smile and at we're you. going to talk about hygiene when we come back. On Kane and Cobb. You're listening to Kane and Cobb on the Blaze Radio Network. Rocky with an eye on Twitter says, Hygiene. Sounds like a topic I would hear in health class. Should girls go into a separate classroom, Will? No, no. Hang out. I think you can all withstand Charles Cook's manliness. Um, hey, I said this. I love the face you make when you realize I'm about to come. Like, you can, like I'm about to come get you. I'm about to bring it. I know. I know. I'm about to, I'm about to um, insult you. <laughs> uh the uh, the dentally challenged thing. Um, you had to, you can pull it together. You can you can pull it together. Um, what is the deal with England? I think it's in <laughs> some. I think it's in some regards uh, now a myth, but historically there's been less of a value, I suppose, put on straight teeth. I imagine this is what you were. Is referring it orthodontics to. or dentistry? Is it straight teeth or um, cavities? You're the one throwing stereotypes around. You tell me. Well, I can't remember. It's definitely straight. It's def- orthodontics is clearly one of the issues. I'm just trying to remember if cleanliness is as well, cavities and whatnot. Look, don't, don't, Americans put fluoride in their water. The government puts fluoride in our water. You do not have fluoride in your water. Is that correct? I think that's the case. Absolutely. you got cavity-filled, unstraight teeth. Well, I don't. You don't. You have very, very, very nice teeth. You could say beautiful. 
no, not after the first 30 seconds of this break. <laughs> I come out of this break. Um, did you have braces? I did, absolutely. I hated them, of course. You are so posh. Because that would have been rare for you back in the day, right? That would have been a social... Did you have braces? I did. Well, why aren't you posh? Because it's commonplace here in America. It's commonplace in England as That's well. very middle class here to have braces. Right. Same, same thing in England. Incorrect. Why is everyone always trying to turn me into an aristocrat? I'm you not. are. <laughs> going to get into that in the next hour. Absolutely not an aristocrat. How often do you wash your towels? Uh, well, actually, this is now a different answer now that I'm married than it was when I was living on my own. The answer when I was living on my own <laughs> was reasonably and frequently, I must admit. I mean, now, you, now all the time. You smell them. I mean, they were mildewed. No, they weren't mildewed. Lying. They, if you, that's a lie. If you washed them infrequently, they, they were mildewed. I said reasonably infrequently. I have data. Not to the mildew point. I have data here on how often you should wash your towels. Hang on a moment. Did you have mildew-laden towels before you were married? Absolutely. Actual mildew? Well, no, you smell it. You know, you, you, you use it, and you're like, this towel's a little ripe. But <laughs> if you don't care because you're a guy. <laughs> uh, three. Three three uses before it should go in the wash. I think that's probably what we do now. Millions because women, of skin cells. women civilize men. That's a fact. How often do you wash your jeans? Like, what's the social cue on that? So there was a song uh, in England a few years back saying I've been wearing the same jeans for three days now was the hook. And I thought, well, that, I don't think that's particularly wrong. Three wears on jeans is no. completely I would say maybe four or five wears, and then I would wash them. Four or five is a little of a, little of a stretch. Is that too many? I think threes. What about socks? Oh, one, one wear. Yeah. I've got that data from 538. Uh, you, you need to wear. Socks after everywhere, but apparently right. a great percentage of people don't. In Occasionally, I even change my socks in the evening. 13% of people wear their underwear on more than That's one day. Now, that row. really is appalling. That is appalling. Most of them are British. I heard. That's not true. No? No, I heard most of them are from Texas. <laughs> you wear them until they can stand up on their own. All right. That was rough coming out of that break. I don't know. I should let it go, right? Let it go. Pretend it never happened. Let's talk about transgenderism when we come back. Absolutely, and without the info. Okay, and go. You're listening to Kane and Cobb. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Radio Network. SE Cup is off today. I'm here with you, Will Kane, along with my English friend, Charles Cook. Friend. What? No, no, go on. Oh, is that presumptuous? Oh, just English is true, at least. I thought it got intimate in the last segment. Um, I'm sure some of my radio slip-ups, this ought to make its way into a drop. I mean, if that's not pulled and used against me, I don't know, that I'm safe for all of humanity. I'm safe from here on out. Um, for the past hour, we've been talking about the contradictions. Actually, the, the social cues, the branding of liberalism, liberalism in the modern sense, not in the classical sense. And I think the issue of gender identity today seems to be the one where liberalism is having the greatest amount of trouble reconciling itself to reality and reconciling itself 
with itself, like in the mirror. The contradictions are simply colliding. And just, as I said in the first hour, kind of creating this, this collision, a black hole sucking reason and logic and rationality all down into it. And it's largely over the issue of gender identity. And there's a handful of stories out in the news right now that I think illustrate this exact premise. Um, I'll share one. You share one. Let, let's do this this way, Charles. My, my story comes from um, all female colleges. There's many of these up here in the Northeast. Uh, Mount Holyoke. I'm not familiar with all of them because I didn't grow up up here, but I know Mount Holyoke is, is, is one. There's Mills College. That's actually in California. And these are traditionally all-girls schools, but they have recently agreed to officially admit male transgendered students or biological males who dress and act like women, making them the first two universities in the nation to put such policies in place. It just seems to me this is uh, I don't know how this is a logical, tenable situation. You can indulge the idea of, look, I think the issue when it comes to transgenderism largely is a, a, a philosophy of just be nice. Just be nice to everybody. Just accept. That's like at the core root of most transgendered conversations. And it's an easy ideal to uphold until it collides with something else. And now if men can be admitted to women's colleges under the pretense of self-identification as a woman, you just defeat the whole purpose of an all-girl all college. Sure, and then you have the question of why so-called cis men or men who believe that they are men and also physically are men can't be admitted to the same college. And we've seen a number, I think, of women's colleges uh, in which uh, it has been announced that women who say they are men, who say they are out of step with their biological state, are permitted to enroll. But men who uh, are what we would traditionally call men are not. And that in itself, I mean, eventually that's going to end up in the courts because some states have non-discrimination rules right. that seem to cover that. So you've then got a problem of the fashion colliding with the law it gets confusing it does and my example is from wellesley which is in massachusetts a state that has such a non-discrimination law at wellesley a woman uh, writing as a woman applied and was accepted uh, in the interim between acceptance and matriculation she decided that she was a man named timothy not entirely a man, I think, but more man than woman. She asked the students at Wellesley to accept her as a man, which they did, by and large. And then she ran into trouble. She wanted to be the diversity officer at Wellesley. And a small group, she did eventually win, he did eventually win. This is where it gets confusing, you see. Right. Uh, and it also gets, I think, very difficult for people who are only just learning about this that's stuff. That's only because you're boorish, by the way. It's no, only because well, you're right. insensitive and boorish. And I think that's right. The, the, the accusation uh, is, if you step mildly out of line with the rules that were made yesterday, that you're, you're boorish. But it is difficult, I think. But whatever we regard this person's uh, mental state to be, uh, he, she ran up against an inherent contradiction. Having announced... Timothy, we'll call them, as the name they wish to be known by. Having announced that uh, Timothy was going to run for diversity officer, a small group within the college said, no, 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 
you cannot be diversity officer in a women's college because you are a white man. You say you are a white man. We don't want a white male diversity officer. Now, this, to me, brings up a couple of questions. One, given that it is an all-female college, you would think that a man would, by definition, be diverse. Right, right. Which means that at least some of those people don't really believe that Timothy is a man or in diversity, yes. The second question I thought was interesting is, you really have varying definitions there or these varying acceptances of what Timothy actually is. Timothy is effectively saying, well, I am a man and I want to be treated as a man, but I also want you all to know and recognize that I am a man who's not like other men. Right. Whereas those who were saying we can't have a white man as a diversity officer are taking the claim at face value and saying, no, no, you are a man and we will treat you as we would any other man. Now, I don't know which of those two propositions is the most acceptable today at this exact point in history, but one of them is not. And yet this conversation seems to have gone reasonably well on campus and Timothy was uh, elected. So as you say, these are all new ideas and they're starting intellectually at least uh, to eat themselves. And the inevitable product of that is that the fashion will change by the day and everybody will be expected to get behind it, however silly it gets. And if tomorrow we decide, well, Timothy is a man, but not really a man, that's what we will be expected to acknowledge. And if the fashion is, no, Timothy is a man and must be treated as if uh, he has always been a man, we'll be expected to get behind that too. It's becoming a mess. But the contradictions won't go away. No, I they think won't. it's fascinating. The contradictions with A, reality, and, and B, with the advocates themselves' values. So let me give you an example. One of the policies that the modern left has advocated for consistently, consistently is the Violence Against Women's Act. Um, that that uh, any sort of, of violence against a woman is of heightened necessity to punish, and we can all agree of various things, including it's abhorrent to hit a woman. We had this debate with Ray Rice scenario. But now we find ourselves in a situation where Fallon Fox is a transgendered man to woman, mixed martial artist fighter, MMA fighter. And so she is going in the ring to fight against other women. So, and winning, by the way. Really? Yeah. That is a surprise. Right. It's almost as if there are biological differences between men and women. Not according to the doctors the MMA has hired, who've said there are no biological differences between Fallon Fox, a transgendered woman, was once a man, um, and a cis woman? None doctor said right and so therefore she can go into a ring and beat the hell out of other women well i think as the general question of domestic abuse it raises conflicting prerogatives there for the left on the one hand uh, there is the constant and sometimes unrealistic strive for absolute equality in other words well of course men should be able to hit women because women are identical women are exactly the same there are no biological differences you take to its Logical conclusion, what this doctor said. On the other hand, we hear all the time, and this is a serious issue, I'm not belittling this, but we hear all the time about the scourge of domestic violence, mm -hmm. which is a real problem. And the presumption behind that is that men should not hit women, that men should not use their superior strength. And this is acknowledged when we talk about domestic violence, that men are, by their nature, on average, uh, stronger 
than women. But those two ideals cannot be reconciled. Right. And as I say, what is going to happen is that whichever one of them is more popular is the one we will all be expected to get behind. But that will change overnight according to the situation. A third story, or a fourth story, I'm not sure what number one right now, is the idea, and this was instituted in schools in Nebraska, that gender identity is such a sensitive issue that schools should stop using the term boys and girls, segregating people into these binary groups. But you should try to use terms that don't presume things about the children. So call them, for example, purple penguins. All purple penguins line up on the line up on the rug in the middle of the kindergarten classroom. Not boys and girls, purple penguins. And if you find the need to segregate them into two separate groups for lining purposes or something like that, say people who like peanut butter and jelly in this line and people that like turkey over in this line, whatever you do, you cannot separate them by presumed gender identity. It does make you wonder whether in 50 years the Earth will be entirely devoid of new people. Uh, we are denying at that level the basic biology that has got us here, and that drives almost every man and every woman. There are, of course, cases for treating people who do not fit, as they would put it, into the gender binary with respect, treating them equally under the law, and so on and so forth. But what you're seeing there is not laws and rules being drawn up to cover the exceptions, but the bringing of the mores on the fringes into mainstream society from a, from a young age. Absolutely. What you deal with then are impossible to reconcile contradictions. You cannot say men cannot beat women unless that man self-identifies as a woman. In which case, now that it's over, you cannot have all girls colleges unless somebody says, I'm actually self-identifying as a woman, so I get into your all girls colleges. What you're doing is exactly what you said. We can all say, I am going to personally, and I think we as a society should be accepting of people's choices as long as they affect themselves and don't impose upon other people. And we can be kind and we can be accepting and, and, and understanding to the best of our abilities. But you can't then say, if you don't, or if you fail, or if society doesn't adapt to what are uh, deviances, and I don't use deviances in a derogatory term, but deviations from the norm, then you are somehow close-minded and bigoted because your society devolves itself into uh, just a swirl of irrational contradictions. Right, and it would also deprive us of any normative language whatsoever, and uh, akin to the transgender movement in in parallel with the transgender movement is another fringe movement, it must be said, that uh, doesn't get as much attention. People who uh, believe or wish to be non-human, animals, cartoon characters. There are famous examples, a man who has got his entire body tattooed with leopard print. Uh, There are also people, you'll find them on Twitter, who will say, I'm an other kin, maybe a pixie. Uh, or a character from Lord of the Rings. Now, that's fine. I would recommend if anybody meets somebody of that variety, they're polite and kind. But if we were to propose changing all of our language, not only within schools, but, say, within the government, within airlines, within civil society generally, to avoid using the word man, woman, human, uh, human being, in order to make sure that none of those people were ever offended, right. we would be 
rejecting standard reason and normative linguistic values that serve us extremely well. And that's what you've seen in this school in Nebraska. They're not suggesting that children be taught a class on those at the margins. They are bringing the language of the margins into the classroom as standard procedure. And in doing so, they are impoverishing uh, our understanding of the world and the normative values that children who are learning about the world need to operate. All right. Charles this morning has held himself as a man of the people, um, held himself out as that, uh, said he's not an aristocrat. Well, I challenge that. I'm not um, a man of the people. Oh. But I'm not an aristocrat. Oh. I made the, let me put it seriously. I made the, the binary choice that you reject. Charles is fancy. That's what I'm saying. What is it about me you think is fancy? NPR voice you keep projecting over the radio this morning. We're going to get to that when we come back on Kane and Cup. You're listening to Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. And if you want to build the argument that Islam is a destructive force because it's convenient to your own prejudices, like a, a dear old uncle hemorrhoid bill here, then you can build that narrative. A study published by the Pew Research Center last year asked Muslims if they favor Sharia law. In Afghanistan, 99% do. That's an example of how you can use statistics to support any argument you want. For example, 80% of Americans believe that um, their country, America, or our country, if you believe the world is just one lovely, cuddly place, 80% of American people believe... Uh, uh, oh, here comes some security. 80%, 80% of Americans believe... Different. Yes, sir. can't film here. This is private property. This bit here? Yes. Whose property is it? The building. Who's the, who's the building belong to? It doesn't matter. Oh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I'll just say it then. You want to get arrested? That was from uh, True News. To tell true. They couldn't film on the... That is Russell Crowe. I mean, I'm sorry, Russell Brand. He's changed. <laughs> Russell Crowe's Australian, right? He is. You know anything about that accent, Russell Brand? Can you identify? Is that, is well, that a fancy accent? No, that's a, a Cockney accent, which that's I Cockney? think to an extent he puts on because he sort of dresses and plays a, a Victorian street urchin. Okay. Let's come back to that. I want to break down British accents before this show is over today. Um but that's Russell Brand on an internet show he has called The Trues. Okay, and he's standing outside the Fox News headquarters this week. And you can hear at the very end where security starts to usher him away, get him away from filming r- really this a little, little one-camera YouTube show he does. And he's railing uh, against Fox News and Islamophobia there. We're talking, we have been talking about contradictions and how the left's values begin to contradict themselves on transgender and various other issues um, when they kind of devolve into this I don't know, social fashion morality play of uh, just making sure everybody likes you and you're nice. And before you know it, you stand for nothing. And and then you stand for only what's popular. And then what's popular turns in on itself. And you you just, you're a mass of contradictions. And Islamophobia is another example of that. Um, More often than not, when liberals say they stand up for women, women's rights, freedom of speech, any of the small L classical liberal values that we hold, 
hold as principles. They suggest that's what's important to them. And Islam, in so many instances, represents the antithesis of that. As Sam Harris said on Real, uh, Real Time with Bill Maher, it's the mother load of bad ideas. If someone points that out, they're an Islamophobe. They hate Muslim people. That's the argument that is made. It's so asinine. It's so illogical. Um, to, to, to not be able to point out bad ideas when they exist. And, they, and I think the left, and Russell Brand there begins to do it in that clip, they fall back on using ISIS as their example, right? Not all Muslims are like ISIS. And that should be granted. That, that, that point should be granted and moved beyond. The question is, what about the fact that so many embrace Sharia law or death for leaving the religion or um, female circumcision? That's what you can't reconcile with liberal, classical liberal ideas. Yes, I think Sam Harris made an excellent point when he noted that uh, people on the American left are quite happy still to talk about abortion clinic bombings in 1986 as an indication of what's wrong with Christianity, but not about polls showing that vast numbers of Muslims, and of course not all, uh, believe in principles that are utterly at odds with those of the West. The, the problem here... That uh, women should be stoned to death, right. that you should be able to be killed the, for leaving the religion, yes. on and on, that homosexuality, homosexuality is published. Yeah. Uh, I think the reason for this is that uh, the left, by and large, has a hierarchy of victims and a hierarchy of villains and a hierarchy of heroes. Uh, and at the moment, the uh, Islam is higher up in that hierarchy than is uh, than are women. And this is why you see Ayan Hirsi Ali being uh, disinvited from Brandeis uh, because whatever she has to say about women, and she's a fabulous example uh, for women, is not as important as that she might offend some members of the audience who are Muslims. It's also why you see uh, lesbian groups marching next to uh, extreme Muslim groups in London. Well, who's higher marches. on the hierarchy list there? Uh, even though they would, uh, one would kill uh, the other, uh, but when it comes to the two of them, the the people who back them backing uh, the the Muslim groups. All right, let's take a quick break. I promise we're going to be breaking down um, British accents and Charles's aristocratic background. When we come back. You're listening to Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network. Greg Charles Cook was um, telling us that the left has a hierarchy of victims, a hierarchy of villains, and we debated who's higher on the hierarchy of villains, a white male Brit, Charles Cook, or a white southern male, myself. And, and I'm telling him, I think in America, the left views me as the higher villain. The southern white man embodies everything they say is wrong. And There's I, a presumption of racism. There's a presumption of privilege there's a presumption of frat boyness to it all you with that accent they are granting you a certain amount of enlightenment 
that doesn't place you at the top of the hierarchy no, of villains. not on the left. And in fact, whatever enlightenment I'm granted is, works against me because I am seen as the architect of Western uh, neoliberalism, as the left would say. Already I am <laughs> seen as the architect of imperialism. I am seen as the villain that killed the American Indians. I am seen as the villain that ran India and ran the slave trade. That is not how you're viewed. Well, not by you or normal people, but we're you're talking here about... You're viewed as the about... imperialist that we whoop, okay? No, absolutely not. Uh, we are, of course, talking about a very small number of people here, the sort of people who would look at you and judge you not by your ideas, but by where you're from and by your accent. But those people put me higher up on the hierarchy of villains than you. It's not a considerable distance between us, <laughs> but I think, I think the British... Uh, especially given that people like me are mistaken routinely for Tories, which I'm not, I'm a classical liberal, for aristocrats, which I'm not, I'm from a middle-class family uh, that wasn't a middle-class family 40 years ago at all, uh, I think I am seen as everything that's wrong with the world by a subsection of leftists. All right, we also have the hierarchy of victims, which we talked about, which ranking those, it appears that, that Muslims are at the top of the hierarchy of victims, somewhere beneath that fall women, homosexuals, which you would have to suggest are less victims in the left's mind because of the enabling of the bad ideas in Islam. And let me give you just uh, uh, an illustration of that. This is Ben Affleck on Real Time with Bill Maher. I think it was a week ago now, right? One week ago? Two weeks, yeah. The thing we want to talk about, of course, is that you and I have been trying to make the case, I think, I have anyway, that liberals need to stand up for liberal principles. This is what I said on last week's show. Obviously, I got a lot of hate for it. But all I'm saying is that liberal principles like freedom of speech, freedom to practice any religion you want without fear of violence, mm -hmm. freedom liberal principles. Still get agitated over the abortion clinic, treatment of women and homosexuals and free. Crucial point of confusion. Yeah, thank you. I think we're having trouble with that audio. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, the crucial point of confusion is that, that we have been sold this meme of Islamophobia where every criticism of the doctrine of Islam gets conflated with bigotry toward Muslims as people. Right. And that is uh, it's, it's intellectually ridiculous. Even it gets so hold on, are racist. you the person who understands the officially codified doctrine of Islam? You're uh, the interpreter well, of that, well, so you well, can say, well, I, this I'm, is, I'm, I think I'm any... I'm actually well-educated on this topic. I'm, I'm asking you, so I mean, you're the, saying if I criticize that, you're saying that Islamophobia is not a real thing. That if you're critical of something... It's well, it's not a real thing when we do it. Right. Well, well, no, it no, really no, is. I'm not denying not... That, that certain people are bigoted against Muslims as people. That's, right. And that's a that's problem. big of you. But the... But why are you so hostile to, about this? It's, it's gross. It's racist. It's, it's not. It's, but it's so it's not. So, it's like saying it's those so not your shifty Jew. You're not listening Absolutely to not. what well, we are saying. You guys are saying, if you want to be liberals, is, believe in liberal principles, right. like freedom of speech, like, right. um, you know, we are endowed by our uh, forefathers with an inalienable aspect, all men are created. No, Ben, we have to be able to criticize bad ideas. And of course we Islam, do. No liberal doesn't okay, want to okay. criticize bad but ideas. Islam but Islam why when is the mother load of bad ideas. Jesus. So we have, we have... That's just a like, fact. Like it's not a It's an ugly thing. It is a basic liberal well, well, let me unpack That is Ben Affleck amazingly condescending to not just Bill Maher, but Sam Harris. I mean, say what you will about Sam Harris. Agree with him on some things. Disagree with him on others. Really well-educated, intelligent man on most of this. And that is the illustration of um, the, the politics of fashion, of social cues, and the contradictions that go along with it. Yeah, that was the uh, 
unthinking leftist position there being put there by uh, Ben Affleck. And w- what I think was so funny about it, as, as somebody who's been on Bill Maher's show twice, is that Maher was playing effectively the role that conservatives play on his show, which is to sit there and try to argue uh, ideas and try to argue ideology and the role of government and the actions of the government and uh, being hit by nonsense, being hit with accusations of racism, being hit with accusations of hating others, uh, being told that uh, he couldn't possibly know what it was that those he was criticizing believe. And I hope, uh, in vain I'm sure, that Bill Maher would have gone home that evening and thought, hmm, perhaps when I shout racist at anybody who disagrees with me, that's how they feel, because it was clear to anybody who watched it. No, I don't think so. But it was clear to anybody who watched it that Sam Harris certainly, and to a lesser extent Bill Maher, were making a point about ideas and about hypocrisy within the world of ideas, and that Ben Affleck's only reflexive knee-jerk response was to say that they were gross. Uh, It's not a thought-through position. Affleck is, as you say, merely defending the fashionable and trying to be nice i imagine he thinks he's being that's nice. kind of that's kind of the thing I, I brand myself as a nice person i heard a word like our discussion earlier and hearing the concept of child porn leads you only to the grunt the robotic response of condemnation he heard a criticism of islam he wanted to brand himself as nice and inclusionary and not racist and he had that automated shallow reaction yes and in the by the way, the most fascinating part to me is how condescending he is on his way. Harris says, this is not uh, a criticism of Muslim people. It is of Islam. Oh, how big of you, Affleck says. I mean, you're not listening. You're not respecting the well, he intellect permit, coming your way. He couldn't permit that line to be allowed into the debate because it would have meant he had to be engaged Sam Harris on his own terms. And I've noticed this within Bill Maher's audience. I remember debating the minimum wage uh, earlier in the year, and I said something which is which is just an economic fact. It tells us nothing about the political question, and that is that if you uh, tell an employer that he has to pay his employee more than that employee is worth, if you tell the employer that he has to pay him too much above the level of that employee's value, the uh, employer will not Im- uh, will not hire another employee. And the audience booed me. Uh, that is a basic fact. And I that think that's what opinion, you... Right. No, and I, it's, it's Economics 101, and I think that's what you saw with Ben Affleck, was that uh, Sam Harris sat there very calmly and explained what he'd found, uh, and it was too much for Ben Affleck, so he had to go for uh, the accusation of racism or bigotry. All right, let's take a break. Can you tell the difference between a London accent, a Cockney accent, a... Is it received pronunciation accent, Charles? It is. It is. I can All tell right. most of them, I imagine. Well, we'll see can, how I do. Yeah. Can you do it? Can somebody in the audience? What about somebody from Cornwall? What about somebody from uh, Liverpool? Let's see if we can figure all this out when we come back. Will Kane and Desi Cup. We'll continue in a moment on the Blaze Radio Network.
I played that clip from Russell Brand a little bit earlier, and I were, was telling Charles here that I believe you said that's he, it's a Cockney accent. You said right? Yes, a, a stylized one. That he that for an American at least, well, at least for me, I can't distinguish between any English accents, or I've never invested the time in actually hearing the difference. So it all carries enlightenment with me. It all oh you're oh very very aristocratic with that Cockney accent, um, but you of course that's incorrect. Uh, it's incorrect to presume that all English accents <laughs> sound the same, yes. In fact, you've worked very hard on your accent. Well, I haven't worked hard on it. It's just that this accent, the one I think Americans who are perhaps more discerning than you, have come to associate with English statesmen, with actors, uh, and with aristocrats, is in fact a contrived accent. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm making this up as I go along. It doesn't mean I'm consciously using this accent, but... It was designed in the Victorian era in schools so that uh, merchants and other tradesmen, I was looked down on then, who sent their children to the great schools in England would uh, have children eventually who gave nothing away. In other words, who were not uh, speaking in the manner that their parents spoke. Didn't give their background away. Right, and so if you went to Eton, for example, and you were William Gladstone's son in the Victorian era, you would probably have arrived with a, a Liverpudlian accent or a regional accent, but you would have come out sounding like any other aristocrat. That was the intention of it. So it's called received pronunciation. It is, and it was picked up uh, not only by the good schools in England uh, and by the uh, aspirational classes, but also by institutions like the BBC. If you don't speak with a received pronunciation accent, are you looked down upon? No, not necessarily, although class is a problem in England. Uh, but, but could you not you be would... a wealthy man from Liverpool who spoke with a Liverpool accent and accepted into polite society? No, you would be accepted into polite society, although slightly less, perhaps, and this is a difference between England and America that I've spoken about quite a lot, what you would not be able to do, I imagine, is graduate from, say, RADA, which is the acting school from which most of our great actors come. If you if you watch British actors, and they have a great purchase in America, uh, you will note that almost every single one of them has the same pronunciation. And there's a reason for that. It's it's clear. It's, uh, there was a, also a, a reasonable um, uh, explanation for its having been adopted by the BBC, and that's that over the BBC World Service, this is a particularly clear way of speaking, a one to which people around the world in the empire and beyond could, could uh, become accustomed. Okay, this is what we hear when you talk, okay? This is, this is the accent, um, basically. This, I think you, this is what I think of while you're in a restaurant. Can you play cut two, Scott? She was very upset by the death of poor Mr. Pamuk. Why? One can't go to pieces at the death of every foreigner. We'd all be in a state of collapse whenever we opened a newspaper. I feel, I My feel mother, like, Lady Grantham. I feel like not only um, that's like a point of view you have as well. Hold on, I am. That's uh, from Downton Abbey, right? And I'm Maggie Smith in this equation, am I? You're the one that's saying you can't go to pieces over the death. Now, of the I think point. that's just about right, but she is posher than I am because she's an actual aristocrat, and there's an edge to receive pronunciation when spoken by aristocrats. It would be a little more like this. You see, hello, Will. Now listen, look here, old man. Ah. I'd love to come on the show next week, but I can't because your co-host will be back, and I have things to do. So as I looked this up, it was that was designated. Um, what is it? High received pronunciation. Exactly. There's a distinction. Okay. 
And people do that? Like, that's, that's the real aristocrat? They speak that way? Well, they do. There aren't, of course, too many of them left in public life, although they do uh, live in the countryside, as they have for a millennia. Okay, so here are some of your regional accents. First of all, let me play cut three. You tell me what region this comes from. There's some good in this world, Mr. Farrell. And it's worth fighting for. That sounds like a West Country accent. I know this, of course, dearly because my mother is from the West Country. She doesn't speak like that anymore because she now has my sort of accent. She did it deliberately. So that might ask you a question, actually, as to how people perceive accents. She was looked down on at university for having a West Country accent because people thought it was, sounded stupid. It sounded like a farmer. I think that's an American, though. That's Sean Astin playing Sam Ganges. And that's Lord how Ganges. colonial Americans probably sounded. All right. Here is another accent. Actually, Scott, play cut five. If something catches my ear, I don't listen to new metal bands. I don't listen to go, give me the top ten of the new metal bands. I want to, I've got to. One of the dangers of that is if I, if I start to like it, if something gets in my head, it'll come out my mouth, you know. Can you? Can you? Well, I know who that is. I, I know where he's from, and he does still have some traces of Birmingham and Midlands accent. Yes. The problem with. Ozzy Osbourne. Right, but the problem with that is that that's a combination of a Midlands accent and drugs. <laughs> that's extreme. But you know what's fascinating to me? So you just described the difference between a Midlands accent and a Western accent, and we're talking about a mileage difference of, what, 100 miles tops? Yes, about that, yeah. <laughs> that's crazy. All right, let's play cut four. Where does this come from, Charles? I think that nobody quite knows uh, which drink it is that takes him over the edge of being merely a social or hearty laughing drinker into a morose and hungover wretched creature. Where does that come from, Charles Cook? Well, that's an odder accent. It's Welsh originally. But <laughs> He's too good. Because been... you knew it was Richard Burton? Well, yes, but again, Richard Burton has obviously been told to speak in a more RP way, so that's a combination of RP and Welsh. You're good at I told you, England, and I dislike this about it, is riven with class. And these accents reflect it? To a large extent, yes. I looked up this morning all these different British accents trying to educate myself on them. And it's, it, as I listen to one cut, we don't have time for it, but I, I have it here. I'll, I'll tweet it out. It is fascinating. I could hear the difference once somebody started doing them. Like if you're from Cornwall in, in the south, a higher pronunciation of the R's, more piratey. The erotic sound. Yes. Right, and that came from uh, that England the into came from? America. That's why Americans ch tend to pronounce their R's, except in places like Massachusetts, Boston area. And if you're from, for example, uh, Yorkshire, it's like the, the R doesn't exist. No, well, in Yorkshire, they're taught like that, right? This is much, much, you know, we'll go for a bath, we'll go sit on the grass, but we won't be eating pies all night. We'll, we'll go to beer later. And can you do a London accent? Well, you know, because like, we went down the pub last night. We had 15 or 16 drinks. And uh, I, don't know, I don't know where I slept, if I'm honest with you, but uh, at least I'm <laughs> home now. I can keep doing this. Can you do a Western accent? Uh, we don't have no, time. We don't know about that, Mr. Frodo. <laughs> Mount Doom is a long way away. Chris Alcedo is coming up next on the Blaze Radio Network. Thanks so much to Charles Cook for hanging out with me. Charles Cook from National Review. See if you can tweet, the, tweet this podcast out. Let's get him to come back. We'll see you next Saturday. You're listening to Kane and Cup on the Blaze Radio Network.